This is Caroline with Daily Review. And this is Mike from Pop Culture Review. And this is the Outsider Podcast. Tonight we're talking about Episode 8 of Season 1, Foxhead. Foxhead was written by Richard Price, as he's written all of them, and it was directed by J.D. Dillard. This was an easy title, right, you guys? If it's not a reference to the mask that the Claude thing wears, then I don't know what it is. I think we gotta call him Goo Claude, no? Goo Claude? Just to keep it consistent. Yeah, I think Goo Claude also. There's a lot of talk on the internet, and every time that the Goo Man attacks someone and wearing someone's face, there is always these things of... I was so surprised that Claude did that. Why would he attack Grandpa? Shut up. People do say that? I I saw it like three different times. Are you watching every episode? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's frightening. Wow. So there's a lot of confusion. I swear, for after episode six aired, I saw in two different places on the internets uh, the question of I'm confused. Is Terry Maitland dead? Come what? On. Come on. <laughs> wow. Like, okay. I, I get waiting for the twist, but Jesus Christ, I think I think we can be pretty <laughs> sure Terry's dead. Turn hey, in your remote you, control, sir. Do you guys know someone who wishes he was dead? Jack. Turns out El Cuco, on top of being a demonic, malevolent spirit, is kind of an asshole for a boss. <gasps> I mean, he was a real jerk to Jack. I mean, I, I think I felt, I definitely empathized with Jack last week. But I felt really bad for him this week. He's bringing carcasses. He's bringing sacrifices left and right for this hungry motherfucker. And he's getting grunted and getting bones thrown at him. Not cool, Dude, El Cuco. He's, being like, he's like a bully, this El Cuco is. You know what? Here's the interesting little nuggets that came out of Jack's story. I don't want to go like super deep dive into Jack, but I do want to just like hit the high points. This whole idea that food for El Cuco could be like good food versus this cancerous food intrigue right like there's a purity factor for him but he could still eat it he just doesn't enjoy it as much or doesn't get as much rejuvenation or nourishment out of it right that was my takeaway he can eat the poisonous food obviously the guy i think dabbles in poison pretty well in cancer and such but it doesn't seem to fill him up the way a good nutritious little boy might. child yeah. <laughs> okay, scariest El Cuco moment. So I've had the one where it was Jack's mom and she does, she's off screen and she goes, hello, Jackie boy. That part scared the shit out of me. Poop my pants, pee my pants, run out of the room. I hate that. Here's a mess. Second scariest part, the hand reaching up to the mm-hmm. front seat. Ah! Great. I also agree with you. I thought that was some good Alfred Hitchcock bullshit. Dun, dun, dun. Scared the shit well, In the out moment, of me. I kind of thought it might have been in his head. Ooh, you did? Yeah. But, I mean, obviously it wasn't, but it, but it felt like it could could have been. It was the most okay. corporeal. I mean, it was the first hint that Guman, El Guman, is, you know, taken a solid form and is out and about again, probably since he was last wore Terry's face, really. But it was the tattoos. He was sporting very clearly Claude's tattoos on his knuckles. Claude famously has can't and must written on his knuckles. And it was the can't hand that came across reaching for it. So for me, that was an important scene because... That's a level of transformation that that indicated to me that El Guman is soon or very close to becoming El Gu-Claude. I'm going to take that as an important scene as well, because he could obviously read Jack's thoughts. Jack just looking up at the fisherman's pictures of the family and how that was so clever that it wasn't just one picture. It was that like kind of Rubik's Cube of pictures. It could turn and he could see the family having like all these different moments. And he's like realizing I killed this man and look, they went skiing and look, they went here and here's their vacation picture. And the fact that the Gooman like reached his hand and say, give it to me. 
He knows Jack is feeling shit about it. He's actually willing to stop the pain of that in order for Jack to like keep focus and keep moving. I thought that was really interesting. Did you guys think that Gooman had that level of, I don't know what to call it, like sort of telepathy slash control? It struck me more like the Emperor or Darth Vader's power. I don't think he made Jack hand it over the talisman, you know, the dead fisherman's talisman of family members because he was feeling benevolent. I think he knew that it was distracting Jack and he need, you know, I need to eat. The goo man lives on Carl Jung's like first basic level always. He just needs to keep Jack straight focused, you know, get me food, get me food, get me little boys, get me food. <laughs> We're all like, <laughs> do we think that there's something special about little boys versus just children? He's He's dabbled in girls too. That's um, true. True. Good call. It is what, just little children. I think Holly, when she was laying it out in the meeting where she came off as being crazy, I guess that was two weeks ago. Was that last week? That was just last week. She made the point of saying that it, it seems to her he only attacks children. And do we have any reason why we think that that's true? Or is it just like what we were all guessing about the, the, the tragicness of losing a young life creates more grief, more confusion, more pain? Than losing someone who's older. Yeah, that's what I thought was kids, especially it's like uh, the focus on uh, before they be turned into teenagers and parents start to hate them a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's the peak, I guess, of the child sweetness and promise, I guess, is the is the moment that he likes them best. Before they get to be teenage dicks, right? Pretty much. I think it's that. But I also think it may uh, have something to do with children typically are the healthiest breed of people you know that 9 mm. 10 11 is the real pocket for vitality and youth that's why it's vitality and youth the older you get the more rancid your meat's gonna be and if the guman yeah. is sensitive to bad bad food cancerous food he's not gonna go get you know some jacked up 89 year old he's gonna go get that nice veal Gross. there's a reason why there's a reason why it's so expensive in restaurants he's a connoisseur <laughs> he certainly is he's, he's got a, discerning he's taste a, he's a guman he's a <laughs> <laughs> right were you guys surprised that they had jack a listen in on the cb situation there the police radio and realize that they had the apb out and are you proud slash i'm not sure what to even say surprised at Jack's level of cleverness that he calls a police shooting and gets all the police who were staked out at his apartment to go ahead and scoot out. I was surprised that he outsmarted them, actually, that uh, the protocol would have been that every one of them has to abandon that post rather than at least leave one car. But it was clever, though, Paul, because they would think it was a, a brother in arms, right? It's one of their friends that was shot. Sure, but I mean, if you're going to send, I mean, is it doesn't matter if you send four cars or three cars? See, I think it's though, it's like tapping into your, I know the guy who was shot part, not what protocol is. The like, I should be there for my friend, my fellow officer. I took it a little bit different. The whole scene as a whole, I took it as proof that Jack was very well aware of the cell phones being on and being tracked last week. One, I took it all as proof that he intentionally left the phones on he wanted to be tracked you know the whole he was trying to invite a suicide by cop kind of thing last week because he showed uber police smarts he knew how to manipulate the system and he would know the protocol my reaction to that scene was he knew that that was the level of a crime that needed to be called in in order to divert everyone away from 
staking out his place. If it was just a holdup or just like a cat in a tree, it wouldn't have earned that kind of response. A murder of an ordinary citizen wouldn't have gotten that much, but a murder of a police officer, that's what it needs. This was just proof that Jack really does know his shit when it comes to police work which is useful for showing his level of intelligence here, but also going back to last week, because that was a big topic everywhere, was why did he drive two hours out of the way? Why did he leave his phones on? I think tonight's opening was all helped prove what he was trying to get at last week. He wanted it to be over. So then do you guys think that it was a surprise that there was an APB out so quickly on Jack? He, and that he, he heard seemed it surprised. He, he did um, seem surprised. That part of it rang just a tiny bit like, well, you had to expect that. I mean, you you know what you did, and you know that they were going to catch up with that pretty quickly. So I, I think he was just hoping for more time, but knew that it had to be a short amount of time before they figured it out. I'm not a Stephen Kingophile enough to have picked up on it, but was there any significance to the license plate, the HM11202? I only mentioned it because they made a point of making sure we heard it. So I wasn't sure if that was an Easter egg that I maybe I just missed. Shoot, now you're going to make me have to go look it up. But no, it doesn't ring a bell right away. See, the outsider, except for the Holly Gibney part, is sort of standalone in his universe. I'll have to think about it. Noodle noodle. Okay, so I know that the story, this background for Jack came out in the drive with Ralph and Holly, but I want to kind of take it out of yeah, I wanted to, the timeline and too. talk about his background. For those of you guys who sometimes listen to us and don't listen to the show, don't watch the show, reminder, it turned out that he actually had these hunting skills. He wanted to be a sharpshooter, a sniper, and he was top of the class, but it got all the way to the point of the mandatory psych eval that he doesn't pass where he becomes just a clerk in a warehouse, like nothing, nothing special at all. And Holly quickly latches onto this and is like, no wonder Al Kuko would want him. What did you guys make of this? Did you feel like this was a good backstory for Jack? Should they have made it more? Is it enough to have like a lifelong dream of doing something and getting all the way to the last step and not actually completing it? My first thought was alarm that the police department would accept the army's castoffs and be like, yep, you're a detective. Like that was a not not something that I hope reflects reality. I can't say for sure if it does, but maybe police departments aren't privy to those kinds of evaluations, uh, and that's why it would never come up. I, I don't know. It just It just disturbed me that he would be not okay for that job, but still okay for police detective or police officer, because I guess you got to be a police officer before you can be a detective. That part of it kind of was sat with me weird. I mean, it seems pretty par for the course for the Cherokee, Cherokee City Police Department. You know, it seems, <laughs> seems like they've got some questionable minds at work in the detectives department. Uh, Tamika, who we know the least well, I think at this point, is the only one who doesn't have any kind of questionable brain issues or emotional issues. But certainly <laughs> Ralph and Jack are not screwed on straight. I mean, the two of them are definitely reactionary hotheads. I thought it was interesting, given the relationship we've seen Ralph and Jack have, that Ralph would be privy to all of that information. It almost seems like Jack would have had to tell him all of this in the same kind of broken state that that he spoke to Holly last week in the car, where he didn't seem to obfuscate or keep anything back. He just kind of stream of consciousness let it all out. Because otherwise, I don't know how Ralph would have... It's not Ralph is like a higher detective. I think they're all equal. I was curious how he would know all this, but I took it at its face value. 
And I think it was confirmation for Holly of why Jack and not someone else. I mean, she's been pretty right about Jack literally since the first time she saw him when she said that it looked like someone was trying to rip his heart out. I thought it was just good confirmation of all of, you know, of her instincts already. To answer your question more directly, though, Caroline, I could say, yeah, I, I could empathize with, with a guy that feels like his life was leading up to one thing and then it just wouldn't happen for him. And then that kind of casting a shadow on everything that came after that as being not as good as what he wanted for himself. I, I can I can empathize with that. To go from being elite military sniper to warehouse clerk in the Aleutians is about as far as you can possibly go in from one direction into the other. It's not even like he went to like the MPs or something. He was su- something equivalent of being, quote-unquote, in the game military-wise. They literally shipped him off to the edge of the earth and made him count boxes. Pretty significant that that, that would have only come out at the final psychoval. That it was so serious as to treat him that way, but also not to be caught until then. That also probably says something about the screening process in the military. <laughs> they probably should have asked some questions earlier that they didn't. Seems like I'm... before you'd waste all that time training him, right? Well, that <laughs> makes it curious, though, because I wonder if it's something that is like you are really mentally unstable or is it something like you are easily swayed or easily corrupted, or something that wouldn't necessarily show up like, oh, this guy's over here rocking in the corner. Oh, we didn't figure that out until after he already passed all of his, you know, shooting training. More like maybe he's easily influenced or something like that. Something more subtle, I guess, that El Cuco was like the perfect little puppet master to scoop into. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. When you think about the kind of the the scope of what that psyche valve might be trying to measure and what one might do to fail it, it does get kind of disturbing because the stuff that comes to mind is like, are you okay with killing people on orders? That sort of thing. I guess the correct answer would be, yes, if you order me to, I'll do it. But but a way you might fail that might be, yeah, I'll kill anybody you want. Just make a list. That sort of response, which maybe that's where Jack went and that that's what got him in trouble. The way Jack was portrayed by Ralph in this scene really reminded me of Private Pyle from Full Metal Jacket. Uh, okay. For, for those that are familiar with that film, Vincent D'Onofrio, maybe in one of his best roles, who is this kind of dog kicked and abused. He's overweight. He's out of shape. But he, through the abuse of the drill sergeants, you know, he's admitted to the military. He goes through the whole program, but he eventually turns into just this psychopath killing machine with a singular focus of bloodlust. The way he was talking about it kind of made me think, well, maybe Jack didn't necessarily go in as broken or as unstable, but it was through the process of becoming this elite military killing machine that it was the final straw that broke the camel's back. Ah, good insight. That could be. I was extremely proud of Claude in this episode in taking his fate, his destiny in his hands and getting the hell out of Dodge. When he was feeling so shitty about that town, and I know we saw him quit his job in the previous episodes, but to actually physically remove himself, so freaking proud of him. There are so many horror movies, you know, that you feel like you're watching this and you're like, oh my God, why would that person do that? Have you guys ever seen a horror movie where someone's like, you know what? This feels hinky. I'm going to go ahead and get out of town. That is not usually what adds up to uh, a good horror movie. It's usually someone that's like, yeah, this isn't really a problem. I see no reason to go anywhere. (laughs) That's usually how they treat it. For all the good it did him, though, Jesus Christ, every character except for Genie and Glory got in a goddamn car. Even the monster got in a car and followed him down. You know, the the poor guy can't even get a break. 
You know, he, he runs to fucking Cecil, Tennessee to get away from the madness. And the madness literally gets into two cars and follows him. Poor That's guy. a question mark in my brain. How did the Jackmobile know where to go? Or was it just kind of a cosmic coincidence that they converged on Cave Palooza or whatever it is? No, I think there had to be some vibe about where Claude was in the universe because maybe let's say he learned something from the Terry case and didn't want to have another two people can't can't be in the same reality, that business, right? The same human can't be in the two realities. So I want to say that El Cuco did have some sort of vibe of where real Claude was and wanted to make sure that the crime that happened was in proximity to where Claude actually was. That's all well and good, but it, but this whole goo Claude execution uh, feels super flawed, you know, needing to wear the mask, etc. So being as planned out as that is is um, it's it's a little counter to the rest of the the attack. Does that make sense? My my feeling on your original question of how did they know, you know, again we saw the tattooed hand come across the the way that you know that indication that he's really at the end stage of becoming Claude's doppelganger and we learned from uh, discussions about Terry I think from Glory saying that Terry hadn't been feeling right hadn't been acting right had been a little paranoid in the weeks leading up to it I don't remember how she phrased it but there was this thought of it and then tonight we have Claude when they when the brain trust shows up at his house you know he tells them uh, they ask him if he's seen anyone around you know, weird lately. And he says, in my head, in my house, the mirror looking back at me. So I think El Guman is far enough along in his transformation that he is tapped into Claude's, if not current thoughts, at least memories. And he would have probably sussed out that he had quit his job at the ass crack. And <laughs> it doesn't seem like he's got a lot of other family anywhere else. So this seems like a calculated move that this is where he would be going to. That's assuming that he doesn't have current thoughts. The way Claude was talking about every night he's stalking around his house. This is before he even leaves Cherokee City, feeling like there's the unease. I, I think I think we can, we can assume that the Goo Man is pretty clued into Claude and Claude's, you know, thought patterns and and his decision making. Is there anything to read into the odd behavior, though, in that we don't have any odd behavior reported by the OG Terry or OG other guy? But Claude is super anxious. He's kind of jumping at shadows. Do we think maybe there's something, I don't know, else happening there that's, that's causing that? Beyond just the vibe he's feeling of. Well, yeah, because because he's getting acting, closer to him. He's act, well, maybe it's the proximity. Maybe that's. I thought that that was actually a statement that someone said, Holly, maybe that the proximity mattered somehow. I'm not sure why I already have that in my head. I don't have it in my notes, but something about like when she says, oh, he's close. He says something like that. And that somehow Claude's behavior, like she was she was sort of intimating that the proximity would matter. Hmm. Am I making that up? Kind of like interference on an antenna. If you have something, I don't know, like metallic and you go near an antenna and your, your reception would get fuzzy and then you would back off and then you go, you know, that it gets less fuzzy or, you know, like a guitar to an amp. You know, the closer you get to it, the more feedback you get off of it. Maybe it's that kind of thing. Uh, because uh -huh. you have to you have to imagine the Goo Man has been keeping close tabs. For Claude to feel the way he's been feeling, you have to imagine Claude, the Goo Man in his nighttime activities has been probably keeping a close tab on Claude and seeing what he's doing. So that's a pretty good theory. The closer you get to Goo Man, if you're the scratched 
that you do suffer something as a result of your quasi-psychic connection to the guy. And that kind of helps if you think about the overall narrative that the goo man needs to be happening. If you are the original Terry or your original Claude and you start acting weird, you quit your job, you start going out of town, you start doing some weird things that people are like, well, this isn't usual Claude. And then you kill someone. Well, even though that's outlandish, at least you have this like series of odd behavior leading up to a big, huge like craziness. So it actually like feeds into that. But I agree with you guys that just the proximity alone, if you think about that feedback sound, if it just gets more and more intense, I mean, you're losing it because of his proximity. But from the outside, you look like you're losing your mind. That's helpful. Yeah. And the other the other crimes were executed, I guess, like. Terry being out of town and and Heath is Heath Heath was the murderer he yeah Heath he, Heath was yeah he was at his mother's right duration but yeah. he was but the but the incident was away from there by by some right. distance so yeah I guess this this does kind of make sense okay so let's talk about Seal because I want to get y'all's take on him some part of me really liked him as his brother and some part of me was like this guy is a piece of shit with a capital piece of shit okay all the letters capitalized all caps lock piece of shit. What did you guys think of Seal? Do you want him as your brother? Or do you don't want him as your brother? This is uh, one of those book changes. This character was actually his mom before. And but so- there is a nice hat tip, uh, hat, uh, tip, though, to the mother and her oxygen in the photo that we see of her in the uh, in the picture ah, hanging on the wall. I did not notice that, but yeah, good call. Yeah, there's a picture of the parents, and she's got the oxygen tank. She's a, she's a chain-smoking, but using an oxygen tank-wearing bit of sass in the book she's actually pretty entertaining and very likable pretty anti-claude i think but yeah i didn't mean to interrupt sorry no but i mean this this character works better for tv because in that part of the book the mom scenes really kind of slow down <laughs> quite a bit and uh the pace of what they're doing involves a lot of a lot of further explaining and sussing out how they're going to proceed and all that kind of stuff and this brother doesn't seem like he's going to be that talkative on, on those kinds of things. He looks more like a action-oriented kind of guy. So that works better for TV. And tacking on to that, the, the mother storyline, one, she also felt unease. And she took to the idea that her baby boy had been doppelganged very easily. And there yeah. was no conflict. When the brain trust shows up in the book to Claude, who's now bounced to his mother in Texas, there is no conflict among any of them. She brings them in, they laugh, they all have a great time. It's a very Three Musketeers thing with the brain trust Claude and her and his mother. Um, other than her moving slow, it's all conflict-free. So it's all of them versus the Goo Man and Jack, uh, the way the book sets it up. Here, you have to get an hour out of it. We still have a couple of hours left of television, so you definitely need Seal to be a little bit of a wrench in the works. But to your original question, Caroline, I actually really liked his opening scene with Claude, I, I really appreciated the way he un- seemed to understand who his brother was, the shared history of a bad childhood that seemed to be coming through. He's taken drugs. He gets that his brother is, you know, has had problems and has done time in prison. I really like that whole scene at Cavestock when he's like splitting wood and that first scene with him. I did not like him in any other part of the episode. I thought he was a total jackass. These guys have come down here to help your brother to prevent something, you know, from him being accused of something that he didn't do. And you're just treating them like such garbage. But you're the piece of shit, buddy. You're the piece of shit. So. Yeah, he kind of just seemed like a, a bad egg. Maybe maybe a decent brother for, for certain things, but a bad egg overall. 
I think I agree with you guys. I mean, he definitely is, uh, you know, got his own things going on. I liked the, actually the thread throughout of obviously he's dealing drugs <laughs> and how there like comes up in various little moments, especially Ralph later. Who's like, uh, could you handle that when we leave? Like, like we're not going to bust you, but like, don't make me be part of this. You know, whatever the fuck you're doing here. I, I thought that stuff was funny. There are not a lot of brothers in the world or sisters for that matter, who are going to show up at the jail and be willing to like take a taser to the back on get my brother out of here. You have no right to hold him. I like that guy, you know, even though it was ineffective in the way he handled it. He's very low class, but his spirit is a spirit I like. Sure. But at the same time, though, you know, since the room, buddy, your, your brother is not in a cell when you come busting in there like gangbusters. He's out there joking with the guards. He's sitting next to them. He's not being roughed up. So maybe take a step back and be like, huh, you know, both of them have done time, obviously. He knows what it should look like. Uh, and he puts himself in the position of getting put in jail. No he part of me thinks Seal is smart. And I feel like that they did an, a really great job of establishing that their family in general runs opposite to the law on the regular. So right. he doesn't have good people skills or, uh, you know, getting along with the cop skills. But I liked that his heart said, I'm going to stand up for my brother and I want to be here with him. And then on the flip, Claude saying, I'm not leaving the jail cell without my brother. There's something to be said for that, you yeah. know, in families. I, I like the brother dynamic, and I agree with you that he was, even when he was being an asshole to the brain trust, he was doing it, I, I believe, truly out of a brotherly sense of honor and duty. And I do like that about him. But to be a drug dealer who seems to deal and sling as much as he does at different locations and not be in jail, he has to have some level of street smarts. And I think we're supposed to think, while maybe not book smart, he is supposed to be street smart. I mean, he's he's intellectual enough to be doing the puzzle without the picture, which I actually appreciated that kind of idea. I would never do that. I think that is dumb. But um, <laughs> what do you have to work for? Jesus Christ, you know, but wh why are you even doing the puzzle? But I, I, I think we were supposed to understand that he was street smart, but he seems to have a very big blind spot when it comes to the law that he can't be suave enough. He can he can know when to wave off someone coming for a drug buy but can't pick up the vibe of a room when he's in a jail cell because I think he has such a blind spot when it comes to law. It's a very shoot-first, ask-questions-many-many-hours-later kind of approach that he takes with the law enforcement, which kind of bites him in the ass, I think, a couple times in this episode. I think it's funny. So you guys, you did not like the puzzle setup? You didn't like that? I did. I thought it was a really interesting character trait that I don't think I've ever seen anyone in any TV, book, or movie ever do before. I don't think I've ever seen anyone do a jigsaw puzzle without looking at the picture or but did you what... like the setup? It was the setup for Holly. Did you like that they set that up? I liked that she came and kind of busted his balls, and I liked his reaction to it. But I just like more the idea of I liked the character development. It was a it was unnecessary, which made me appreciate it more. Kind of character piece of character development. I have seen that trick, I guess, of the the trying to tell a story about a character by having him do a puzzle without the box. I, and a, but that character in question, if I recall, was autistic. So it's interesting, right, that Holly... Well, but that's what they're saying about Holly, right? I thought that yeah. we were thinking Loki. We're not, not going to label it, but we, we definitely think she's got some some special talents that were maybe go beyond and maybe could be labeled. But but she's she's pretty tough to label, to be real. I mean, she's she's got like a wonderful intuition that, to me, I don't even know that needs to be like any other label than that, you know? 
Right, right. Willing to believe. <laughs> but, but before we leave off on Seal, I feel like he does need some recognition and maybe a small, if not MVP trophy, maybe a, a really good participation trophy for giving us the, you quit the ass crack line uh, when they first see each other. Because that's pretty funny. Because then, the you know, Claude feels, he still feels a sense of obligation to his former employer that he corrects him to the peach's crease um you know i I like that he i like that he said ass crack and then i like that claude felt the need to correct him i thought it was just it was a funny brotherly interaction i totally loved also seals when um andy and holly were coming in off the porch and he's like hey how things go out there lovebirds and andy's like asshole and he goes fuckhead I thought that was like super funny and like good comic relief. Like, good on you, Seal. Like, that was funny and normal and what people would say, you know? But at the same time, you start flashing a goddamn camera in my eyeballs while I'm trying to sleep uh, under this situation. Holy I'm probably, God. I'm probably going to draw my gun at you at a minimum. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm stalking through your house in the middle of the night, maybe accidentally shooting your brother because we're hearing the goo man slamming around or something. And you're gonna have you're gonna have your little shits and giggles with the flashing camera. Come on! I, I 100 percent would have rolled over and said, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" There's actually no other response to that besides, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" That's all I got. Do you mind if we address a question that I had when I well, was watching this episode very early on? We were kind of fast forwarding to the brain trust already kind of doing their thing, but I had a question about the validity of the idea that the that their whole that they're functioning off of. Which is, is it okay that the plan revolves on another kid needing to be offered up in order for their plan to work? That's a very good question. Is there a need for secrecy? Do they need to keep it from the local police? Can they say, we think that something's about to happen? Can you please keep your eyes out? Like, we almost need to set up a sting operation. So we don't want to not have something happen but it was it wrong to keep it a complete secret i mean they don't acknowledge it but at the same time they're they're trying to keep the credibility of claude's alibi pure by having cops watch him all night but that means that something bad has to happen somewhere else and so yeah i I, yeah yeah that's a that's a great question i didn't even occur to me but they absolutely do do that, though, because they're waiting for the cops to show up the next morning. They don't know necessarily that it's going to be the next morning, but they're waiting for cops to roll up to Claude's house at some point. It's not like they're some of them are watching Claude and some of them are actively trying to, I don't even know how they would go about, maybe go to like the playgrounds or something. But no one is trying to prevent, you know, trying to catch El Cuco in the act, you know, all of them. I think it would have been reasonable to go to the largest festival in town. Right. When it had been reasonable. And actually, to be very honest with you, when we had Yoon say, I'm going to go head out and do something, I legit thought he was going to go to the festival because some sort of policing gut instinct would say, go to the biggest place where people are congregating and just peep around a little. That's really where I thought he was heading. I thought it was kind of funny just in general that, all right, Claude, we've brought 19 people here to watch you, motherfucker. All right, I'm going to bounce for a little while. You guys need anything? All right, I'm going too. I got to go to church. I got to go over to the Flyright Church and talk to Jesus for a little bit. Like, they all seem to be leaving. Like, we're all going to be with you, Claude. And then it's like Ralph at the house. Ralph and Seal. Like, <laughs> that, that, was, that was really, really, really funny. And I wrote that in here too. That was very Scooby-Doo. That was very like, we all need to be together. Let's split up. 
And you're like, wait, what? Why would you split up? What the fuck, so, you guys? So inefficiently that Holly and Yoon wind up at the same Flyright church and they didn't even go together. You know, yeah. like, at least yeah. talk to each other. Are you going to church? Yeah, I'm going to go to church. All right, well, cool. We'll go together. You know, carpool. Be a little more efficient. Let's talk about that for a second. Have you guys ever found yourself in a position where maybe you guys don't, and we don't have to get into too much detail about your religious beliefs and daily worship habits, but do you ever find yourself that as things are going so bad that you turn to something like God unexpectedly, where you didn't even think, like, if you if you sat there and someone said, well, would you, would you go to church or something bad happened? You'd say, no, I don't think I would. Has anything ever happened so bad that you, like, went or prayed without even really realizing like oh my gosh i'm doing this i've had time i have time not that i've gone somewhere but i have time i have had times in my life where individual events in my life where i have stopped and prayed but no not that i've gone to a backup church fill-in in the middle of the night no never never that dire but i've i've turned my thoughts inward and thought of a higher power and made a plea for sure yeah I've had a weird circumstance where I know this could be portrayed as maybe not exactly like this, but I would not really consider myself a religious person. And I was younger and I fell off of my bike. And while that doesn't sound dramatic, it really was because I hit face first on the concrete and I broke my nose. And when I stood up the and, and I was like in a stupor, so I was like, I stood up and I was just kind of, I was holding my face and I was bent over and I was kind of just wandering and, and like in a circle. And the only thing I was saying was, oh God, oh God, oh God. Like I can remember saying that. And I know that that's like a, a word you said, but I wasn't saying, oh shit, or it hurts or something like that. Like I was on some level calling for help, you know, saying like, oh my God, oh God, you know, like I, I am in pain. I'm, I, I need help, you know? And for some reason that always sticks out to me as like, I, it surprises me because I'm a person who would absolutely swear <laughs> and say bad words or cry or say this hurts. And so it actually, I always look back at that and say, I'm surprised at myself that I said, oh God, when I was hurt like Well, that. to be clear, I have found myself several times in my life uh, where I have been saying, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, over and over again. But yeah, I, don't, I knew you might I, say something I don't like believe that. that's what we're talking about. Who's got a high five for me? Come on. High five. High five. Someone. All right. <laughs> Who didn't see that coming? Oh, okay. I set myself up there. But I was really hurting. Okay. All right. Not a good hurt. I was trying to say. I was trying to say. Like, that really hurt. I don't know. It's one of those things. I think that prayer is very natural for people. And I think it's the reason why there's chapels in airports and chapels in, in hospitals. Because you don't know a lot of times when you're in a position of needing to go to something like that and you just you just need a moment just a moment i respect yoon and holly for for wanting that moment speaking of yoon how did you like the car ride and the kind of the deeper look we got into his character not that he explained a whole lot but the fact that he was able to tell that joke and tell it so convincingly you know making andy believe that holly had powers how did you like that part and as a bonus question does that a few extra seconds spent on Yoon and Andy foreshadow the kind of thing that happens, you know, Caroline, in, in uh, what you say about um, Project Runway, whenever they spend too much time on a contestant, that mm -hmm. they are. I'm like, oh, shit, they're getting voted out this week. <laughs> right. Because we had to just learn about their grandma's soup or some secret little like extra about them. If we find out anything extra about them, God damn it. If we're not talking about their project, they're going. Well, now we know that Yoon is funny. <laughs> is that enough to, to qualify? Yeah. If they get endearing, you're in trouble. You yeah. know, 
I, I, my feeling uh, this whole episode, I've liked Yoon, I think, pretty much since we've met him, but especially since Holly has come onto the scene because he gets her, I think, and I think he is very impressed with how she operates. But I know a lot of state troopers in New York, just in the circles I've run in, I have known and know a lot of state troopers. And Yoon is also a state trooper for all intents and purposes. He works for the GBI. He's a state investigator. He is a dead-on impersonation of literally every state trooper that I've ever known. That joke he told and the way he sold it is exactly how they all are. It's all their sense of humor. They can give a 20-minute dissertation with the straightest, stoniest face and then have a punchline and erupt into laughs that will last them for an hour. It's really endearing. It's very funny. It made me like him even more. But he was all on flex this episode. He's calling He's calling Tennessee and getting Claude picked up for no reason at all and being held in a jail cell. Yoon was on flex. Uh, the, the whole thing with Andy, the way he dealt with the Tennessee cops flashing his badge, you know, dialing the head cop in Tennessee for the little yokel, local yokels. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really, really enjoyed everything, everything you in this episode. I don't think the number is painted on him as much as the, the, well, the red shirt. I think the red shirt is really painted on Andy. That's been my takeaway since he showed up at Ralph's door, but being on this trip now, Ooh, I don't think the chances of Andy returning home right. are so good. Not great, Bob. <laughs> yeah. It's not good, Bob. I definitely agree with you guys on Andy, and we have been worried about him this whole time. But, Paul, you are pointing out something very important, as did you, Mike, just now. Yoon was important, and Yoon played a lot of important parts, keeping Claude in the jail so that they knew where to go get him at. Having him talk to the captain and whatnot in Tennessee, doing all those different things like that's frightening, guys, because that means they are showing what an important part he is being and other people are being quiet. Ralph's being quiet. You're while we have Howie and Alex come, which was you guys, that made me feel like the moment how I feel when they say that those couple of guys come to the Alamo. It was like 30 extra guys knowing they're already losing the battle, but they're so fucking brave. They still show up. Love, love, love that Alex and Howie show up, but they're all quiet, right? They show, but they're quiet. But Yoon is front and center. And because Yoon is front and center, that is scary because then he's been used up in a big way as to like how he could help the process. Like if he goes down now, he goes down a hero because he got them to this point. I think that's a really good point. And I, and I think that's a very defensible argument, but I think there's going to be a limit on the body count. I don't think this is going to be an Alamo situation where no one comes out alive. I think at most four, and I think it's more reasonable that it's going to be two or three of our brain trust people get killed by, before the season's end. And my guesses are Andy. I think everyone's got, you know, bad odds on Andy. I think everyone thinks Andy's going down. <laughs> but my other two picks are going to be Alec and Howie because Howie as a result, maybe of Alec, I think Alec going down was the big sacrifice moment in this episode. The story he told about tasting the copper in his mouth, the fear and the anxiety when he realized that everyone was going down. But then he comes and he stands up to that fear. You know, he, he you know, he, you know, ovaries up, you know, as they say in the, magi in the magicians. And, you know, he faces his fear and he says, no, we need to go down there. We can't let these people, these, our friends, go down there and face us alone. And I think Alec and Yoon are very much fill the same category. So I don't think we lose Yoon and Alec. I think we lose one or the other. 
And I think because Alec overcame his fear to suck it up, get in a car and convince Howie to go down to Tennessee, I think that's what's ultimately going to do him in. Can't argue with that logic. Sounds right. I don't think Howie goes down because I think that A, in case listeners, you guys don't know, they're doing an Outsider Season 2. Don't know how that's going to happen. I think that Glory only really comes back into the story if Howie stays alive and there's still more story to be told about suing the town and watching Glory and the grief and the everything with the girls. He's part of that story in such a big way. I don't think we lose Howie. But I, I think Yoon is ripe for the pickings. I think it could be Andy, Alec, and Yoon as the three. You think Alec and Yoon. That's interesting. Because they very much fill that cop open to belief role. So it would surprise me if both of them go down. But uh, I, I yeah, see, but I the see, story for this. Yeah, I see what you're saying about Howie. I'll, I'll talk about my reason, I guess, for Howie at the at the end. No, go ahead and talk about him. It's okay. There's there's no reason. Go ahead. Well, book spoilers. Howie in the final confrontation just gets his head blown right the fuck off. Like he steps out of the car and it's just like, like no more head. Like he is one of Jack's like first victims in the in the final confrontation, and he comes down for a very similar reason. Alec, Alec originally can't make it because he has a court date that he has to go to, but he gets it changed and then convinces Howie to come down and they fly down in, in Howie's charter jet. And then they drive out to the, to the spot where it takes place. And, uh, you know, Howie comes out and he's like just blown to smithereens. So that's why I think Howie is, but you make a good point. If season two does go, it's just being worked on now. The showrunner is just working on season two. HBO actually hasn't officially announced the, uh, the renewal, but if it does go, you have to imagine you're right. The glory storyline will probably pick up with the lawsuit. So maybe, maybe that is Howie's lifeline. Okay, guys. So we talked about the conversation in the car between Andy and Yoon. I was surprised that Holly and Ralph were going to ride together. What did you think of their conversation? I was trying to suss out the whole time whether or not Ralph has finally flipped, if he's become a believer or not. He says he's not, but at least he's he's staying out of the way. So he's kind of along and, and he's doing the right thing. Do you guys do you guys think that he's finally given everything that happened in this episode a believer or do you think in that car ride he's still pretty like mm, well this is the right place for me to be to 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 do this but i still don't believe in the car ride i do not believe he's a believer i think that we see he's a believer in that last scene when the police officers come up and they're asking about claude he turns and looks at holly holly looks at ralph and it's like oh fuck <laughs> This is real. And that's when I think he turns. Ah, okay. You know, I think the show almost gives him an out. And by the show, I mean, Holly gives him an out in a car to being a believer that for her, it's almost enough that he's just there because she, you know, she goes on and on about how it's great to have people that agree with you. It's, you know, and have praise for you, which I guess she feels she's getting from everyone else in the brain trust or almost everyone else in the brain trust, you know, but she, she says that she needs a Ralph uh, around her to challenge her to be a doubting Thomas, as it were, because it's keeping her on her toes. It's keeping her to ensure that she's giving good theories, not just emotionally based theories. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that way, she almost at this point doesn't need him to believe as much as she just needs him to be there. But I think Caroline knows exactly right. The it's here, he's here at the end and the look that they exchange because the cops don't know what the fuck they're talking about. But Holly and now Ralph very much know there's no more denying it. Another Claude, there is no other, there, Claude has no twin. We know his brother now. 
you know, another Claude is now in the town and uh, you can't deny it. And it's exactly predicted. I mean, this is what Holly said would happen. You know, Ralph was sticking around to see if the police never show up, hoping. And maybe that's it, Paul, to your question about why did they keep it secret? Why didn't they handle it more broadly? Why didn't they let the local police know and say, hey, listen, we have a potential criminal out there. We can't give you any details on an ongoing case, but we need you to keep your eyes just extra peeled. Why would you not do that? Because Ralph doesn't fucking believe anything's going to happen. He doesn't believe that the cops are going to show up one morning and say, so we had an abduction or we had an almost abduction. He's assuming nothing's going to happen. He's just walking through the steps to prove that nothing's going to happen. So that's why that's the answer to your question. And and almost uh, on top of that, you know, for a cop like himself who believes in doing stupid cop shit, like collecting evidence and gathering facts, how would he ever try and cold call a foreign police station and describe what he's describing? You know, so there's this goo Claude out there and <laughs> he looks like Claude. He smells like Claude. He acts like Claude. He's not Claude. You know, like how would you, I mean, he doesn't, again, he doesn't believe it. How would he ever convince a police force that has no idea what he's talking about of what he's talking about? Uh, so the other thing in the uh, Holly Ralph car conversation Ralph, in, a, in an attempt to kind of reach out to her, talks about the story about his mother and Derek and the dying and the record player. And, you know, the only time he ever heard that record after he played it when he found her dead was in the hospital when Derek was born. And then Holly deadpans, you know, it just sounds like a coincidence to me. And then they kind of start laughing. It was interesting that that kind of deadpan humor was going on. And that car at the same time that you and Andy were also having yeah. their bonding moment. Right. Uh, you know, so one, I just want to say that I like that symmetry. But what did you guys think of Ralph's confession to her? I feel like that took a lot out of him to say. That seems like a very vulnerable moment for him to bring up, which made me like Ralph more. It did seem sort of like a, a relationship conversational olive branch, you know, at least he thought. You know, I'm going to bring up some X-Files shit and you tell me what you think, <laughs> right? Because you seem to be someone that's going to gonna buy into that. So, so let me know. Like you mentioned with the parallel scenes of the two cars, there are several, several scenes in Stephen King books where the good guys have a moment to have that way that the author wants you to remember them before all the bad shit goes down. And that's what these two car rides remind me of was ralph finally opening up to her not being so caught up in being a dick and and then the the yoon and and andy car ride was funny what did you guys think i mean i i definitely think it was an, an olive branch like you said but i think ever since he invaded the therapist's office to talk about all of this and ever since holly really has come into literally his home and and the way he's had to deal with genie I think he's been looking for a way to connect to her. And again, not out of necessary belief, but out of a way to, to reach her, like a language a language to speak that would connect with her. The overall, the act, his actual story was interesting to me. And I wanted to ask you guys if you have ever had any kind of these moments from beyond. Because I thought it was actually a pretty relatable story. I, I think a lot of people have had these moments, whether they're real or just a coincidence. But they make these parallels of someone is gone, but then something weird happens And it makes you feel like maybe they're talking to you. So I was curious if you guys had ever had one of those quote unquote moments from beyond. I'm open to it, but I just never have. It's not quite exactly the same, but our son has this very old soul 
World War II vet type vibe about him. And he said something that was so odd when he was like three years old, which is really when he was able to talk like in very good sentences. So who knows what he was thinking in his head the whole time. And he, we always thought he acted and I don't know, just had this very like old man soul. And my grandfather had passed away just right near to when Jack was born. And Jack asked me if he could call me Carolina. And that was odd. No one else had ever called me that except for my grandfather. And I said, yeah, okay, sure. Thinking that was like an afternoon kind of thing. And 13 years later, that is still what he calls me. And he is the kid who like cocks his hat to the side. Like he was a World War II uh, fighter pilot and just does all these things that like my grandfather did that reminds me of him so much. And I don't know that that's exactly the same kind of thing or if it's like you see things that you want to see because I was close with him. I don't know. But there's definitely, I think, things in the world that feel like that. For you fact checkers out there, in case you were wondering, Washington Square is a real song by the band The Village Stompers. It's off of the album The Original Washington Square. This is kind of interesting, just as history goes. Uh, the album was released on November 26, 1963, which is just a few days after JFK was assassinated. What an interesting time to be releasing new music. But there you go. Well, now we know. And now we know. I was curious. I, I, I meant I had made a note to myself to look it up to see if it was a real song. And it's even on Spotify. That's where I found it. Mike, did you say you have ever had a moment like this? I have had a moment like this one time, one very spe- That's why I think why it resonated with me. My grandmother died of lung cancer and she spent the final six months of her life in kind of a coma in the hospital. And I was young. I was 12-ish. 12 or 13 and uh i never went to see her i never had the courage to kind of go see her and say goodbye and uh i wasn't even actually in the house when the doctor called to say that she had passed away everyone else in my family had gone and i guess had felt like they had said goodbye and so fast forward about a year after she passed away i had a very vivid lucid dream where i left my room and i walked through my house to go to the bathroom and i saw my grandmother sitting in the spot where she would always sit in our dining room and just kind of like smiling at me, not waving, not talking, just kind of smiling at me, watching me as I walked through the room, never said a word. And she was still there when I came back in my dream from the bathroom uh, and was still there, <laughs> just just smiling at me. It was very serene. And I woke up and I felt very at peace. I felt very much like it was a sign from her that it's safe to use the bathroom. That it was safe to use the bathroom and it was safe to use it in her spot. No, no, just that she had kind of, you God. know, had, uh, had kind of like, was like not mad at me. Cause I, I had always walked around just like with, especially with kid guilt that I had never said goodbye to her, that she thought maybe I was mad at her or something like that, or I didn't love her or something like that. So for whatever it was worth, uh, maybe it was my own brain was just trying to get me to get over, get the fuck over it. But I always took it as a, you know, as a sign from beyond, as it were. That's a pretty good one, Mike. But what do we think about Holly's response of saying, I think it's a coincidence. Oh, she was joking. She was 100% joking. And then them laughing and laughing and laughing. Yeah, because obviously... Just that? Yeah, because obviously of all the people who would say it was just a coincidence, Holly would be the very last person to say that's just a coincidence, given what they're talking about. You know, I don't think she likes those kinds of things. That that was my take on it, that it was very much her just deadpanning, giving the response that she would think Ralph would give in that same situation. It was her olive branch, to kind of use Paul's phrase, I think it was an olive branch back to him for sharing something so kind of, per, you know, so personal and, and vulnerable. I like that. I like the idea that that it was her sort of saying, we've all had our moments, Ralph. And, uh, <laughs> you know, still still showing too that she can have that like, 
I don't know. Those like soft moments and quiet moments, I think, are really important to this show. Like the asshole fuckhead thing. As silly as that seems, it's real. It's real. And it's like the way people actually act. And that helps such a show that is really, really out there in the concept of chasing the boogeyman come back around to be like, no, they're real people. They're actual people who joke with each other and swear and say funny things. Because they could have just kept it super serious. And that would have been appropriate to what they were about to go do. So we've talked about all of the car rides in this episode tonight, except for one. And I think that's where we need to take the episode to finish it. Uh, we have the Davison family. And I'm pretty sure we have Grandpa Mike and his wife. I didn't catch her name. Um, and then I, well, I presume was their grandchildren, Wanda, a maybe tween age girl, and Sam, a boy full of wonder who is obsessed with caves and in particular wants to see the saber-tooth cave where there would be thousand-year-old saber-tooth bones buried here at Cavestock. Mike, that was uh, Deb Davidson. Deb. Deb, that's right. Yes, Deb and Grandpa Mike. Deb Davidson. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they head on down to Cavestock, and once Grandpa Mike pays the exorbitant fees to get into this festival, which seems to be all the rage the family we're fast forwarding through all the kind of setup they're they're interspersed throughout the entire episode but the the big takeaway is that night night has fallen they're still at cave stock wanda has gone off to scout some boys as girls her age are want to do and sam has wandered off to check out some maps about where this particular Sabretooth cave is i wondered and questioned how safe it was to let your grandchildren wander out of your field of vision in this kind of very packed, dense area. And I was curious, I mean, you guys are parents. Um, you've had little kids. I, we, I have a son. Uh, I don't know that I would let him go out of my field of vision like that at some point. So I was curious what you guys thought about that. Did that make sense? Was that realistic? Because it's necessary for the plot to unfold the way it does. They've been to several cave stocks in the past. So I think they had some idea of who they were surrounded with, or at least they felt some comfort level with that, right? Yeah, that's what I, that's where I was at, Paul. I, I think that if this was our first time that we had been there, yeah, we'd be all up on them. But it sounded like they had been bringing the kids since they were very, very little. And so the idea that we would find some place to sit down and let them stay within like a certain area, not necessarily even be able to see them, but we know Joe at the blacksmith faux little whatever shop, and we know the, you know, where he's going to go get his bare head and stuff like that. And so maybe they're, unfortunately lulled into a, you know, a false sense of security just because the area is familiar. Doesn't make it safe, but it's familiar, which was an important little like tidbit that they shared that they said, we've been coming here for so long and so many years. It's true. It's, you know, it's kind of how I feel about Olive Garden. You know, when you're there, you're family and you feel very safe. You can feel very oh my comfortable. God. <laughs> um, you know, when I'm, when I'm face deep in a never ending pasta bowl, I don't know where Tom is when he's wandering off and getting up to, but I feel safe there. So I, I, I guess that, that makes sense to me. What did you think of Wanda being, again, this is a teenage girl and all teenagers, boys and girls, you know, are a little self-possessed and a little self-consumed. Um, I gave her mad props for spotting her brother and this this fox-headed man wandering off with her brother. Were you guys impressed? Did that, did that strike you as real that a sister would? I, I think that's uh, worthy of being sister of the year uh, <laughs> honors for TV because... I've seen, anyway, that trope play out where the sisters, she acts too late, basically. She knows what she's seeing is wrong, but she thinks it's going to resolve itself without her needing to intervene. So this was a a delightful, direct take on 
on taking on you know squaring this away right away. So I was impressed with her. I liked it. Caroline, Caroline, what did you think? I super appreciated it. I I really thought that she did such a wonderful job. And again, I I appreciate that this is stuff you don't see in horror movies. You would have just had her be a flaky teenage girl who was distracted by some boys. She would have just been out of the storyline, you know. But I, I, again, sort of like with Yoon, like paying attention to certain things or Claude paying attention to certain things and actually getting out of town. Like, yay for not just falling into like the usual formula of what happens to have her actually get up, yell and again, not have a, the the traditional, everyone just parts the crowd and allows the kidnapper to run away with the kid. No, they like circle up and like attack and say like, what the fuck, sir? Like, all that like that's awesome and not what happens in horror movies all the time. But, per- but probably yeah. pretty reflective of what would happen in a real situation. Assuming one. I don't know. Uh, uh, uh. I'm going to stop you right there. I think. Do you know what they, t- no. Do you know what they teach women to yell if you're getting raped? What? Fire. Because ain't nobody gonna come help you if you yell rape. If you yell fire, they come and help you. So I am no, I do not trust a group of people to actually intervene I, I, just because you're yelling. I disagree only because of the situation. Because it's not, it wasn't a grown woman, and what she was yelling, uh, a girl's voice yelling, "That's my brother. That man is taking my brother." I think you scream that out. I, I feel very confident. A group as filled and packed in an area, here's that message. They're going to zoom in on that. People don't like kids being fucked with. I think adults are very different and people are much less inclined to intervene when it's an adult yelling about an adult, but someone screaming, my brother is being taken by that bad man in the mask. I think people, I think guys especially are definitely going to go get involved in that. I think there is a back of the brain, prehistoric protect the children bone that kicks in in that kind of situation. Grandpa Mike coming out of fucking nowhere with the flying tackle, like he's playing defense, <laughs> right. you know? Like, that was fantastic. I liked everything about it. Everything in the scene countered all of the TV tropes. You're absolutely right. A horror movie, most TV shows, you know, Sam is 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 gone the way of the saber-toothed tiger. But I, I loved Wanda. I loved that she had the, the, the forethought to scream, uh, that she didn't react too late, even if she did see it. And then Grandpa Mike coming coming out and saving a day. But does Grandpa Mike get scratched? He has a couple marks on his arm. I didn't, I wasn't positive if Grandpa Mike took a scratch uh, on the hand or on the arm. But what did you guys see? Did you see anything? It seemed like he was too dazed to be with it enough to do that, to scratch. I didn't even think a scratch was on the table but now that you mentioned it i mean there was a moment there when he before he got away where everyone's kind of looking at his cro-magnon face that a scratch could have could have taken place yes he 100 percent got scratched it was on his like forearm above his wrist i saw that too i saw some markings but i wasn't sure if that was a scratch because it looked like there was a couple there so i wasn't sure if that was just something else or if that was the scratch that that i feel like in the story of a scratch it was a scratch because uh, it's the story of it. What did you think? Oh, I'm going to go toe to toe with you on this crowd reaction. I think I do not agree with you. I don't agree. I I think it's ideal and and very best case scenario that a crowd gets involved and actually does step in. But unfortunately, I don't think that's what happens. I think a lot less people would be kidnapped. A lot less people would be mugged or carjacked or all the things that happen right out in public if people would be willing to get involved. But most of the time. 
Mm. The reality is, is that people would grab their own kids. They would watch. They would be horrified, but very few would step forward. Interesting. So I, I was happy that they did, but I mean, I, we're, we're, we're parents of, I know you have, you have one young son. We have three kids. Paul, how much do you trust that anybody would step in necessarily with three special needs kids that we have? How often has it been like, we can't trust anyone to step in. We have got to be the diligent ones. In every setting, except for when we are with other special needs parents, I think. Would I, do I feel that way? That makes sense? No, say it, um, say it more clearly. There are times like when we're at camp or whatever that, and this, that these settings are very similar when we're at camp where I would feel perfectly comfortable with all the other parents there that no one is looking to add to anyone's woes in that, in that kind of environment, you know, but I do agree with what you're saying. And like when we're mingling with the uh, gen pop out there, yeah, I don't have much hope that anyone's going to help me out if, if, if any, if I, if I needed it. Which is sad, but it, it's just true. Like most people will just grab their own people around them, save themselves, try to get away from the ordeal, but very few people are willing to step That's in. That's interesting. Um, yeah. It's sad, but it's true. Oh, I disagree with you. I mean, you haven't convinced me at all. I, I, I still completely disagree with you. Okay, so I we've had situations where adults have been yelling at and or accosting in some way, verbally, not physically, our kids or our helper more likely, and no one will step in. No one will stop them from saying horrible things or doing something horrible. And it has, it has been the um, extreme oddity when at a restaurant, when uh, this was a case where someone was yelling um, that, that our child shouldn't be at this restaurant because she had special needs and so therefore, like, she shouldn't be here when the owner came out who felt the most authority in that place was willing to come out and tell the other people to leave and actually defended our child and her helper. But no one else in that restaurant was willing to step forward. No one else was willing to say, sit down, stop what's going on here. No one was going to step in. We've had another situation at a McDonald's where not even the workers or the anyone was willing to step in. This person chased our kid and our helper out to the parking lot and continued to bang on the glass of the car and no one would step in or try to stop it. I mean, this is real life. I mean, this is my real life experiences. So, I mean, I, again, like, I mean, I would hope, and they were kind of in an area where I feel like there were some really, I want to say like macho, like, I guess, and I don't use that word negatively in any way, but like men, manly men, if you will, traditionally manly men who would step forward and be more brave than maybe just an average person on the street. Um, and that is who kind of stepped forward, you know, those, those, those couple of bigger guys stepped forward. Um, and then of course, grandpa Mike was the best, but, um, but I don't know. It's been my experience that people can, people will let things get pretty friggin' out of control without stepping in. With his face having been spotted and no meal procured for his trouble, what does El Cuco do now? Because this isn't the plan. He's not supposed to have this partial change. He's not supposed to hunt in this condition, but he did anyway. And now he's been spotted. The centuries-long plan is completely out the window. 
what what does he do now? And it was, it was and you know how it's Holly indicated he was already in trouble you know that he had to move from his area where he would have normally hunted and hid was already thrown into chaos and this is just this is just further it turns out jack is not a very good helper mid-form helper as it turns out i guess so it is a big question you know next week is the penultimate episode of the season and it is uh it's going to be interesting to see does he go just straight desperate now does he employ jack and himself and just and just become like feral animal desperate at this point. I think, I think you have to assume he is, I mean, he's got to eat, right? I mean, he's got to continue to feed and he needs that good kid meal. So something has to give when they unmasked Claude uh, or goo Claude, he seemed not quite transformed. He seemed like his features were still a little bit, I don't know, odd looking, but I wasn't sure if that was just the mid candid shot of goo Claude or if he really wasn't completely finished yet, he's very close to being transformed, but not completely. No, I think I think he's not. Uh, that's why I call him Cro-Magnon, because uh, yeah. he seemed to have some pretty pronounced uh, brow ridges there <laughs> that were throwing off Claude's face a little bit. Yeah, his eyes definitely look weird to me, too. They look too wide or yeah, too large or something. Yeah, yeah, he looked messed up. Definitely. I, I think that he's got to go into one of his um, uh, hiding kind of situations, which they made such a point of this being this cave festival kind of thing that I think he's going to go into a cave. I think he's going to that's where I think we're going to end up meeting up with him because that's where he would have taken the boy, I believe, which means he probably has a little den situation that he was maybe coming out of to get the kid and could bring him back to because he kind of knew where he was going to take him. Um, so that's my best guess. Is he's going to end up in a cave. Presumably it was the cave where, wasn't he in the cave when he was throwing the bones and being like an asshole to Jack? It seemed like it, uh, yeah, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. so I agree with you. I think I think he probably is probably returning there because that's where his nest would be, for lack of a better word. So I have a question that's sort of, we have the, the problem of, of El Cuco, right? We've got to get to him. We've got to fight him. However, we also have the local police and we have... Mike Davidson, who I believe is scratched. How much of our story is going to need to worry about keeping the people who don't believe or don't know the story from hindering us actually being able to get to El Cuco and actually battle him? Will any of our good guys end up crossing the local people in some way that gets them, I don't know, sidetracked or pushed out of the storyline of actually being able to fight? And does this Mike Davidson getting scratched means if we have has season two, is Mike like heading into season two where now we've got to somehow extricate El Cuco from Mike Davidson's heart or head or wherever he nestles? The Mike business seems like a better thing to pursue for a season two spinoff type storyline, right? doesn't seem like there's enough time to really fully address the idea of of changing into another guy still in the, in the next two episodes but that's just a guess i really like the davidsons so weirdly enough i'm like very willing to go along with mike and deb and their storyline going into season two like they've already i don't know they kind of warm my heart already uh, my, my instinct is I feel like I feel like Grandpa Mike is too old a character for them to follow, even as season two. I agree. If they're going to follow it up, it's going to be in season two. I think the last two episodes are going to be straight brain trust, El Cuco and Jack, and very little else. I think it's going to be pretty singularly focused in the last two episodes. Because mm-hmm. I think if they give us the epic 
finish that we all want from the season, it should take them two episodes to bring just that story to a conclusion. So I have a feeling, I feel like we're going to put Mike, Grandpa Mike on the bench for now, and then maybe, if any, pick him up next season. Do we have to deal with anybody other than just getting to El Cuco and fighting him? Like I was saying, like the do the local police or do the fact that they're investigating or any of these other weirdnesses, like are they going to cause trouble or are we going to really spend like two full hours where no one really creates an obstacle for us besides just finding and killing him? I mean, I can't believe the cops are just going to take, even with their badges, they're going to take Ralph and, and Holly's word for it out on the lawn. I think that seems like a very optimistic flex to tell Claude just to wait inside and don't come out and we're going to deal with this. Um, so I think there probably has to be some resolution to that. Um, and maybe even Claude gets hauled in or something, which may be for his own protection. But yeah, I, I think that's going to go fast. I think it's going to turn into a manhunt. The They're probably going to section off again into teams like they did. You know, let's all stick together and then split up the same kind of Scooby-Doo, <laughs> Scooby-Doo antics, like you said before, which will make it easier for Jack and El Cugo to pick them off. So it'll be interesting to see how they pair off next week if they do pair off that, that's my guess what's going to happen but i think it'll be telling to see who goes with who well let's let's as... make a prediction there what do you guys think who's our it's normally fred and velma now with fred fred and daphne duh right for sure those two if we're going to split up into smaller teams it's those two right yeah sometimes velma goes with them. sometimes and then we've got definitely um shaggy and scoops who goes in our pairing who goes where with what or like who who pairs up I think it's fair to guess Ralph and Holly stick together no matter what, even though Andy will want to be with her grouping. I think she'll continue this, that this idea that she needs, she needs to be with Ralph. Andy needing to, I don't know, go and find her, take off on his own, that sort of thing, putting him in extra peril. That's, and so, yeah, what if they, what if they paired off in like their, their car ride duos then that would leave you in alone and he'd be vulnerable. So yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to go with their car ride pairing is going to be, if they pair off in the, in the next couple episodes, that's what, that's what it's going to be. Uh, I also think pairing off in the same car ride pair so that they travel down in, I think Andy and Yoon get fired on. I think Yoon has the flex uh, reflexes to dodge it, but Andy does not because he's a mall security guy. And I think Alec and Howie both get taken out. That's I'm sticking with my my three red shirts. Ouch! So. That's a lot of lot of lot of lives lost. Obviously, I think it's going to be Holly and Ralph in that final battle with El Cugo. It's probably going to be everyone else that has to deal with Jack. Is my best guess. The rest of them have to take down this Hulk of a weirdo um, who's been taken over. But yeah, I think Holly's going to have to use like all of her secret powers and then some to try to deal with this thing. I know you guys have ideas within the book on how El Cuco gets killed, so I don't want to get too deep into that. But can you kill an El Cuco is the bigger question. Or is there more than one El Cuco? Well, if you can kill an El Cuco and there's only one El Cuco, that that throws a real, real shadow on how the season can end if there's going to be a season two. So I think those questions are kind of linked together. Um, yeah. If... If there are multiple El Cucos, or unless we're going to do some kind of time jump, like an El Cuco origin story, you know, uh, like El Cuco in the Industrial Revolution, you know, something like that in season two. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I do think there will be 
a lot of time spent to hunting Jack. You know, it's kind of like a video game trope, right? You don't go see the final boss right away. You got to get through a couple of mini bosses before you get to the final boss. And I and I think Jack is the mini boss that has to get taken down before that final confrontation can happen with El Cuco. So my guess would be next week is taking Jack off the board, and which sets it up for an epic final season finale showdown with presumably Ralph Holly on one side and El Cuco on the other. Yeah, that all sounds good. I mean, I've, I'm too poisoned by the book at this point to give a real legit prediction. What shakes out in the book is going to be much different than what shakes out in, in the show. So, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to commit to anything. I know that that we're probably going to lose some guys. I'm pretty sure Andy's one going to be one of those guys. I kind of think Alex going to be one of those guys. Uh, but then. That leaves Howie and Yoon as sort of iffy and Ralph as a definite survivor. Well, thanks you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode eight of The Outsider and that you'll tune in next week to the almost end of the show when hopefully some of these predictions are going to come true. See you guys answers. next time. We need answers. <laughs> Bye. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open and we'd love to hear from you. 